Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 657 with uh, Dr. Caroline Leaf, um, Paul Gilmartin. You know all the bullshit. This, uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. And the waiting room is also the name of our uh, Sunday afternoon slash evening support group meeting. Kind of a support group, kind of a hangout. And... Um, if you're at the $20 a month or above monthly uh, Patreon tier, uh, you qualify for joining it. We had about a dozen people the last two weeks and looking looking forward to this week's hangout. A lot of compassion and support and um, I've been really, really energized by those get-togethers. The episode this week might be controversial to some of you, and I say it during the interview, but I just want to reiterate uh, someone's opinions, uh, no matter how well qualified they are uh, on the podcast, are their opinions. So um, take everything that you hear on this podcast, um, not as the undisputed truth, but as something to, to think about. The surveys are going to be kind of minimal this week because I am going on a four-day vacation, going camping with my girlfriend. We're driving up into the into the mountains, and I'm really looking forward to getting into nature. So today's been kind of hectic trying to get everything together, and but I'm really looking forward to getting out of town for uh, for a few days. Thank you to those of you who have stepped up and are donating on Patreon. Uh, it means a lot to me. We are about halfway towards our goal of fifteen hundred dollar, fifteen hundred subscribers a month. That's kind of the goal that we need to hit to break even with the podcast. Um, we're at about seven hundred right now, and as many of you know, the the reason for this push is that I, for ethical reasons, decided to walk away from a the bulk of my income stream. Um, and another, uh, maybe I want to kind of run this by you guys. You'll hear ads sometimes before and after the episode that are read by somebody else. And I have the option, and those don't make a, a, a lot of money. The money is kind of minimal. And I have the option but I've always declined it, to have those ads run within the episode. But I don't know, I, I find something to be kind of jarring about having those ads. So I've I've chosen to not have those, but um, I don't know. Maybe I should start having those run, but I really like kind of the, I don't know, the consistency of not having somebody else's voice reading an ad kind of disrupting the podcast mid-flow. I like to be the one to disrupt it. This is an awful moment, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Doll. And she writes, Quick backstory. I have a strained relationship with my maternal family. My mom was very abusive to me when I was younger, and her emotional abuse escalated when I got into high school. She told the rest of her family that I was violent and run away and that I wasn't to be trusted. While things have gotten a lot better between me and my mom, and hence most of my maternal family, there's still some tension. 
One night, my cousin was throwing a party, and I decided to at least come back and say hello. I was already stressed from work and recovering from a two-day hangover when my other cousin pulled me aside where no one could hear us talk. Uh, No one could hear us to talk about my relationship with my mom. It got emotional very fast with him telling me I should not talk badly about his favorite aunt and me trying to explain that his favorite aunt was my mom and I had a more complicated relationship with her than anyone realized. I started sobbing while everyone watched. My cousin then said, you know, your problem is you're not confident about yourself and you should be. You're a beautiful girl. And believe me, if we weren't related, I would totally fuck you. My consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. (laughs) And moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. With my Barbies. (laughs) The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself We'll be right back after this (laughs) I'm here with Dr. Caroline Leaf and you are a the boy. Th- th- this is going to be a long intro. Find find <laughs> everybody. Find a comfortable chair. Uh, well, first of all, you're a, you're a neuroscientist. Um, you've written nineteen books. Yes. So clearly, you get no sleep. So you must be <laughs> exhausted. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is uh, you've you've written a book about the mental health crisis with children mm-hmm. and how parents can kind of navigate what must be an incredibly yeah. confusing uh, what, landscape. What, what mm-hmm. did I leave out in your introduction that people might... Oh, you have a podcast. And I'm a psychoneurobiologist, which is, for, in simple terms, is I study the mind-brain-body connection. So that elusive question of what is mind, that's been a huge part of my work. Well, talk about so, that. Let's start there. Well, we all, in, in science, they talk about the easy question of science, in sp- specifically like when it comes to neuroscience. It's that we can understand the brain and the neurons, and we've advanced all very far in terms of understanding structural components and how it works. But the mind is considered this elusive question or the hard question of science. David Chalmers is famous for saying that. I I actually say the opposite. I actually think that the mind is the most obvious question because just the mere fact that you and I are having a conversation and people are listening and we're dealing with a mental health crisis and we have a world that we live in and we are affected by everything around us and we're processing the world, that's mind. If you're dead, you don't do any of that. So mind is the most obvious question. And if you want to study mind, you just have to study humanity and you just have to study how we are responding and how we are dealing with things. And our current mental health crisis is very much pulled around, I believe, the mismanagement of mind. 
And that's what's driven me for 38 years now, nearly 38 years of being in the field. I practiced clinically for 25. I don't practice anymore. I basically do a lot of research, clinical trials, and then try and simplify this process and create tools that people can be empowered to manage their mental health, health without being sucked into a system that tells them that they've got something wrong with their brain or something wrong with themselves, but that we all have our own narrative you know, and how to deal with this as early as possible. Uh, are there examples where you uh, would agree that um, psychiatric medication is is necessary uh, for someone to cope? That's a big loaded question in this current current climate, and I can give you I'll give you the Cliff Notes version, and then if you want to dive deeper, we can. I see um, psychiatric medication as not medication, as drugs. So looking at it from a scientific perspective and being involved with this field for so long and working with some of the top scientists in in the field and psychiatrists and so on, my top Cliff Notes version is that these are, uh, if you look at the scientific structure, they are actually drugs, drugs versus medication. So medication is something that will basically hopefully fix something that's broken so it's specialized it's sort of specialized to heal like the insulin for diabetes or um, blood blood pressure medicine or something mm-hmm. like um, blood thinners for clotting in the blood that kind of thing quite specific mm-hmm. so it's dealing with a specific problem whereas a drug is a psychoactive substance that changes the way that the brain functions and then has this mind brain interaction and so if they um, a drug is something like Alcohol can be classified as a drug. So psychotropics, if you look at the chemical structure, are actually drugs, not medications. But they are presented to the world as medications versus drugs. So if you present information correctly to people and they understand what they're getting into and they make an informed decision, then you know I think it's, 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 it's people's individual choices. But let's tell people the truth of what they actually do do. So essentially what a psychotropic, which would be your antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds and stimulants and things like that, they play a role in that they help a person to basically numb emotions. So when there's very severe trauma or something's really, you know, you're really battling with something that's going on in the moment, You'd sometimes need a little bit of numbing down of those emotions um, to help you through a crisis. But they don't fix anything because you're not dealing with a brain disease. We're dealing with a person's life experience and the experience in life. And so that's where my... my Is it either or, though? Um, yes, definitely. If you look at the situation... Because really? yeah, if you look at psychoneurobiology, mind, psycho being mind, neuro being brain, biology being body. Now, if you did, your brain and body are not doing anything. But you're alive, your mind is actually the energy force that is driving the brain and the body. So the brain is responding to the mind. So every experience that we have is processed through the brain because the brain is a substrate that the mind will use. And it changes the brain. And that change obviously then changes the body. And we have this feedback loop being set up. So if so, yes, definitely we've got to deal with the impact in the physiology of the brain and the body. And that can manifest with all kinds of issues like, you know, one in two people are lonely in this country, for example, and that increases their chance of dementia and undealt with trauma increases our chance of getting physical diseases by 35 to 98%. So you can't divorce them. They stay linked. But what we have to do is we can't just address the end product, the impact. We have to also look at the results. So while we're dealing with the impact of life on our brain and our body, which has increased our chance of all these different things that can go wrong, psycho, you know, um, autoimmune issues and cardiovascular and all the different things that can happen in our body, we also have to address the cause. So instead of thinking, I mean, the whole concept of chemical imbalance has been 
disproved time and time and time again. Yet 95% of people believe if they're feeling depressed that they have a chemical imbalance and that's the cause. They would not be the cause. It would be part of the result. So that you can help to deal with the results with dealing with the medical, physical side, but you have to go back to the source. Mm-hmm. So like insulin would help to sort out the issue in diabetes, an antidepressant is not fixing the depression. It's giving temporary relief while a person is gets to the point where they are able to then go through the process of finding the source of the depression. But so. uh, merely finding the source of the depression, you're saying that's going to alleviate someone's depression? Because I, I, I would find that very hard to to believe. Not just finding the source. You've got to go through a whole process. So the source, the if you the way we show up in life. You're talking about processing. Yes, there's a whole trauma, etc., yes, etc. Yeah. So it's it, patterns it, of thinking, negative that, self-beliefs. Those would be the the um, how we show up. So when when someone has a trauma, that is an experience that is wired into the brain and changes the way that the brain and body function and it changes the way that the mind is functioning. So all three are changed. That then shows impacts how we show up in life. How we show up in life are the things we say and do and our emotions that we feel and how we look at life and the sensations, how our body's been impacted. Those are four categories of signals. So when we're showing up with those signals, we don't want to just eliminate those signals because if you just dampen down those signals, you haven't dealt with the ongoing source. So it's kind of a bit like if you put your hand on a stove, it burns your hand. It's such a dumb right. example, but it makes sense if you see the, the analogy. If I, I can take it off, I can take painkillers, I can put you know plasters on, but if I keep putting my hand back and I don't, or I don't remove my hand from the stove, it doesn't matter how many painkillers I take, eventually I'm going to have a burnt hand. So it's the same situation here. What we have to do is look at how we're showing up and then track that back through a process, a very sequenced process that is over time, not all in one um, go, a very mind-directed neuroplasticity approach that then tracks down to the source. Now, your source is your experience. We're not going to understand, for example, why someone would abuse a child or why someone rapes someone or why someone, you know, the, the things that we, the things that happen in life that are terrible. You can't, and maybe you will get a chance to talk to the perpetrator, but 99% of the time, you just, you're going to get the insight, okay, I'm battling with a relationship or I'm battling with constant depression and not being able to just move forward in my life. It's not who I am. I'm not broken. It's because of something I've gone through. So it's getting to that level of understanding and grieving and being even more depressed for a period where you are grieving what has happened to you. That's very healthy. That changes the the structures of the brain right down to the level of inside the neurons. I, I, I absolutely uh, believe that. You know, one of the supports that I support groups that I um, attend, uh, part of uh, the process is going through withdrawal from any kind of uh, sexual acting out, numbing yes. ourselves, yes. whether it be pornography or an unhealthy Alcohol. relationship that mm-hmm. repeats childhood trauma, unavailable people, et cetera, et cetera. And it is miserable yes. that nine months or so. Yeah. It, it, waking up every morning thinking, I wish I had died in my sleep. Yeah. But on the other side of it is this beautiful experience of feeling um, wholeness for the first time and it and it's not a permanent thing but it's a chance to to get to the starting line exactly should we manage should we hopefully continue to use the right tools to manage 
when something activates Triggers us in a negative and- way or you know we're we're feeling some kind of stressor in something and we want to reach for the old way to soothe slash numb coping mechanism yeah absolutely that's exactly what i'm saying so you've you've described the exact psychoneurobiological approach so all the fancy science is just basically your gut instinct of what you've just said so when i say get to the source we can't change our stories if that abuse has happened if that thing has whatever it's it's your story Mm. but we can change what it looks like inside of us in our brain and our body and how plays out into our future so it's that aspect of what do we do to to get to the point of accepting okay this is why all that grieving all that pain etc and all the process of the that, poison the poison and you know re, re almost redoing the roots like when I, the way i explain it to to children and to adults as well is that and that abusive experience for example becomes a phys- as you're experiencing it with your mind you're putting that into your brain it changes your electromagnetic electrochemistry, everything, all changes and it becomes a neural network made of proteins and inside that are the actual events stored as literally aromatic rings. I mean, I'm going down to aromatic rings, vibrations inside protein. I mean, this is real stuff. It actually is a structural thoughts are real things. And like a tree has roots, a trunk and branches, every experience we have, the root is the source, the actual event, the detail of the event, all those memories, that is processed through the trunk by your unique way that you see it at that time point. Maybe you're a child and or you're an the adult. Filter. The filter. It filters through and it filters through how you see life, who you are, but then also your age, your context, etc. And that grows the branches. The branches are all how you then are living and seeing yourself and how that plays out in those your emotions, behaviors, etc. So what we need to do, and this is all psychoneurobiology, this is all real stuff. This is all valid, real but it's not that, that you have a brain disease. It's that this has impacted how your brain functions, how your body functions, how your mind is functioning. So what we want to do is give ourselves the ability to stand back and observe ourselves, observe how we're showing up, and then retrace to that source. When you get to that source, which can take uh, – we can talk about the time. I've done a lot of research on the time and, and a lot of clinical experience on that, um, and it's very interesting. But when you get to the source, this goes to your question you said earlier on, that's not – you. you you don't always have the chance to get with the person to find out why. You're not going to get all the answers. We have to make a certain, get to a certain level of acceptance and peace that, okay, I can't solve this problem, but at least I know why this has affected my relationships. So now I can't find the exact why. I can't get in someone else's head who abused me or whatever, but I can see that is why, and I don't need that to be entangled in that anymore. I can then shift and be empowered to move forward so this has happened how can i move forward and what i've been doing for 38 years is looking at how does stuff get into your from the outside in every experience good and bad out from the outside through your mind into your brain form these thoughts and how can we reverse engineer that to because of neuroplasticity we can change what it looks like inside of us does that fall under the umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy no it actually that would be an element of so what i've done is i've gone even broader because cognitive behavioral therapy is a technique that says this is a bad thought and this is how it's impacting you and this is where you're going to now replace it with a good thought and then you use techniques to with a a thinking being that's like a well-worn pathway so now we want to walk a new pathway so conceptually it's great but it's only at step five we've got to go through other various layers there's there's 
there's a preparation and four layers before if you want to change your psychoneurobiology to create long-lasting change that doesn't backfire on you. And, and to, so does that go back chronologically to the source, the events? Yes, because CBT basically is not that concerned with the source. It's more with this is how you're functioning in the now. And then let's let's manage the now. So it's got valid validity, but I use CBT-type techniques. So I recommend CBT people use them at step five. Once you've actually re wired. So what happens is if you just do a CBT technique, for example, you will build another parallel neural network, but and then but they're always in competition. Mm. And that's a problem. And it's, it's so easy to fall back. So what we want to do is we actually want to go to that that original thought tree. The original path. Exactly. The well-worn path. Yes. And we want to go to the root system. And we want to, f- like you feed plants that are, their roots aren't doing well. You're literally mm-hmm. giving plant food. You're going through a process of reconceptualizing, trying to ca- get see another perspective, working through these all different elements to that, where you can use all kinds of techniques in that process. I'm providing the process, the system. You can use all kinds of ways of seeing, deconstructing to the root and then healing that root to the point that you feel a sense of peace, but you don't lose the honor of what you've gone through because that's still part of your story. Mm-hmm. And then you rebuild and regrow that thought. So it's not a new thought that I'm growing. I'm actually changing the thought. So imagine a very ugly, wiry tree as the incident with the roots and all the ugly stuff, and that's playing out and wrecking your life. Now imagine going through a process where you take the time to say, okay, I'm functioning like this in my life because of, let me see, this is how I'm seeing myself, the branches. Let me see how I got there, the source, the roots. Now I need to heal these roots. I can't find out why I'm going to have to come to terms with these certain things I just cannot accept. Um, I'm not going to get all the answers, but how am I going to make peace with this? How am I going to reconstruct and heal this root so that I can grow a healthy green tree and this toxic experience shrinks and becomes small? It's still there. I still get triggered, but I can control the trigger, etc. How can I do that? How can I make my story weak? So that so it's the same tree, it's the same thought tree, as right. opposed to just a, and that's where the, the, there's a there's a basic psychoneurobiological process over time that does that. And, and, and what does that healing look like on the outside? Um, grieving, talking about it. Uh, yes. Don't let me put words in your mouth. Yes, absolutely. So it's a process of you get, getting awareness of almost, it, I call it the multiple perspective advantage. So one of the, the ways that you start this process is by compassionately and kindly standing back and observing yourself and giving yourself permission to be a mess because that's okay. You know, it's not who you are. It's who you, it's, it, you, you're showing up like this because of something. And that sounds like a, a, a spiritual Very uh, spiritual. Very spiritual because a lot of the work I've done is on the non-conscious mind yeah. and the mind has different levels non-conscious, conscious and subconscious and the non-conscious is not spoken about much not many people understand that so that's something we can dive into but it's essentially a the most intelligent part of us it's the part that's driving us it's 99% of who we are and it's the part that's on our side so would you would you uh, say that authenticity is, uh, is a fa- in there? Oh absolutely authenticity love all those virtues and values and it's very much on your side. And it links in with our biology because our, all of our, everything physically is basically wired for love. So pretty much our mind, brain and body is on our side. And what we want to do is we want to tap into this on our side, that's on our side, you know, our, the mm-hmm. depths of our spirit. Our friend. 
of friend, exactly. So either you can call it your spiritual mind, your wisdom, your non-conscious. Now, scientifically, we call it the non-conscious, but it's pretty much got your back. It's the, if I come to you and I tell you I've got a lot of issues and I tell you my, I just tell you that I've got, I tell you my story. Mm. And you listen and you say, hey, well, maybe, you know, and you give me wisdom. We're very good at giving each other wisdom and giving each other perspective. And humans are pretty good at that. But we're not always the best at giving ourselves that <laughs> wisdom. So no. this system, you can train yourself to actually tap into that inner wisdom so that you can be empowered. Because I can't come to you every day. I can't go to a therapist every day. I'm living with myself 24-7. I wake up at 2 in the morning or whatever. I'm just using an analogy. Or you're driving in the car and you've got this trigger. You've got to know how to manage your mind in those moments and, until you can get the support from whatever, friend, loved one, whatever, therapist, or all of the above. So in in that, we have to be able to manage our mind and tap into this deep inner wisdom that we have, which scientifically, non-conscious, we call it the spirit level, it's, it's, it's in us. We all know it. We've mm-hmm. got it. We've got this inside of us. And when we tap into that level, and a lot of the research I've done is how do we get to that level? How do we even see that? How do we even know to talk to ourselves? That looks like us looking at our signals because what the unconscious does what we are unconscious us our aliveness this deep wisdom part of us does is it searches for things that are damaging the traumas the the bad habits the whatever level on a level of one to ten and while we are um, at night while we're sleeping a lot of these a lot of sorting and housekeeping that's going on during the day we're building thoughts and at night we are sorting and linking to the past and all that kind of stuff so then when we wake up our non-conscious mind will send signals through the subconscious, which is like a bridge, into our conscious mind. And that comes up, that is um, how you're feeling. What are you doing? What are you saying? How are you saying it? What's, what does your body feel like? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm depressed. I'm, I've got gut ache. Um, I am withdrawing. Um, life sucks. So it's the four kind of little bag categories or buckets that we can put our, showing, our signals into. And we can stand back. We can observe those signals and we can actually then, the minute we observe what we see from neuroscience and from psychoneurobiology, the minute I become aware like mindfulness and all that stuff, this is a kind of taking mindfulness to a whole beyond mindfulness mm-hmm. level, you actually will bring into your conscious mind um, the actual experience. Now, you're not going to see it all straight away. It could take you multiple cycles of time and the time frame is 63 days 66 days when we can talk about that in more depth in a moment but at the minute you're aware you are bringing into the conscious mind what has, has happened but little bit by little bit as much as we can handle but on a neurological level when we do that we actually weaken the network we create a vulnerable state in the network just by this act of Pre, like, a bit of meditation, whatever, but gathering awareness of our signals. Now, we may not have all the meaning yet, but we've started the process of change. So there's a very healthy shift in our neurophysiology. Then when we go beyond that and we start reflecting on, okay, well, these are the emotions. Now, what's my next layer down? My next layer down is to start reflecting a little bit more deeply. If you have a prism and you shine a light through the prism, it's white light and then it comes out with all the rainbow colors. When we reflect, we are doing a focused reflection. We're focusing on these signals that we've observed and we are seeing the, starting to see the depth of each of these. Why do I have this emotion? Why is it showing up in my body like this? Why? These are all logical things, but it's the sequential steps. It's doing this step at a time and very focused. Then you're going to, and you do it for limited amounts of time. Then you're going to capture that 
your third sort of step in the process is you, you're going to write that down. But it's not a journaling at this point. It is actually a mind-brain dump. And there's a system I've developed called the Metacog that enables you to make these sort of patterns all over the page, but you don't have to use that. It just is really You said patterns? It's like patterns. We yes. use, it's like a, like it looks like a neuron. It looks like a tree. So mm. it's a way of organizing information that really forces the left and right side of the brain to work together, brings order out of chaos and dives deep. But if you don't want to do that, you can just write all over the page, however you want, get it out. When you do that, you're starting to draw things up from the non-conscious that are starting to show you a little bit more of the detail of the roots and the associations and whatever. And then when you you stop at a point and then you're going to go to the next level, which is checking what you've written down. What are the patterns? What are the triggers? This is what's happened. What can I do about it? How can I, what's the antidote? What's the other perspective? How can I make peace with the fact that this happened? How can I, I need to grieve. I need to, and then you end the cycle with an active reach and action because we can only do a limited amount in a time. This shouldn't, you shouldn't do more than 15 to 45 minutes of this. It's hard work. Your conscious mind and your brain get tired. Your non-conscious mind is never tired. It works 24-7 at incredible speeds. So what we need to do is have regular breaks. Otherwise, we're going to ruminate and we're going to get stuck and go. So you have to have some sort of an action, like a statement, a visualization, or whatever, that then helps you through the day. And then you pick it up the next day and you pick it up the next day. So you do this. It's called a neurocycle. Within that, the active reach, the first step, that's where you can bring in a great CBT technique or an ACT technique or, I mean, your own things that you've made. There's so much great advice. You get an affirmation. Do pe- do, when people are doing this and say they do it for 45 minutes, do they find themselves exhausted, needing to go take a nap? And, and is that, uh, I've heard that that is yeah. a part of helping uh, kind of rewire the brain. Absolutely. It's exhausting and it, people will respond in different ways. So I always say do a session of 15 to 45 minutes. Um, try not go longer than an hour and be, and you'll get more out of it. If you do less is more and a little bit every day. And yes, you do. So whatever you need to do. So I teach decompression as well. I have an app called the NeuroCycle app and it's also in the books and we've got a children's version now as well where I have um, the whole NeuroCycle system. So I walk you through it with a, a meditation, breathing, some kind of brain preparation, and then the five steps, and then there is decompression. So if you find yourself overwhelmed, you can do these guided decompressions and you can use anything that you want but there's different ways so yes you can be exhausted and that is the brain is worked has worked very hard the brain is like a cell phone it gets tired your conscious mind needs to recharge so that's that's why we have to stop at a certain point to recharge if we keep pushing on we land up potentially increasing our chance of you know getting more getting battling more with the issue now if you do this daily for about more or less 21 days. You haven't formed a habit. We don't form habits in 21 days. But what will happen there is you'll have a massive shift. You will start pulling this thing up from the unconscious, this whole thought. You'll start seeing parts of the roots and the associations and how you've processed this and how it's impacted your life and how you, you know, the five steps takes you through all of that, but in this really organized way. Your mind-brain connection is organized, not chaotic. You want to bring, always want to bring order into the chaos to get the most out of your mind-driven neuroplasticity, if that makes sense. Then once you've hit around about day 22, you've got, um, you've got this, this two parts. If imagine this tree, the roots are healed. Half the tree is healthy and half the tree is still toxic. Now you've got a really good vision of, hey, I can see freedom. I can, I'm actually maybe even more depressed than before. I've, I've had this often with patients and with people over the years and clients and so on saying, hey, I've hit this point and I feel worse. It's called the treatment effect. It's, 
if you go and have surgery, you get cut up and right. then you're healed. Right. Okay. So essentially at around three weeks, we have a half and half situation happening, which is that um, I'm seeing the direction I want to go, but I've still got this toxic issue and they equal. So I could drop either way. If I get triggered, I could fall back into the old pattern, get frustrated, get set up a negative cycle. So that point is critical where if you're feeling maybe more depressed, more anxious, very normal, because you're now seeing why you were depressed and anxious in the first place. Mm -hmm. So you're grieving maybe the loss of childhood or the loss of a beautiful time in marriage or what it's done to steal years from you. You need to grieve. That's normal. So anxiety, depression, et cetera, any emotion, they're not illnesses. They're good things. They're telling us message information, and we need to embrace them to get the message to make them work for us. Also, you're always going to have depression and anxiety. It's just how it's managed and how you keep it in that sweet spot so that it works for you, not against you. So to get to that level, you need to go at least another two cycles of 21 days. And this is all based on lots of science and it's all in my books and whatever, but basically another 42 days, still doing the neurocycle, these five steps with the little meditation or prep, brain prep before. And now you only have to do it for five minutes. So it's a minute for each step. And that stabilizes. And in the brain, what's happening is that network that's now the half and half of the tree, the part that's toxic gets smaller and smaller and smaller and all the energy gets put into the healthy side. And eventually the toxic is just this teeny little sort of sp- sprout coming out of this beautiful healthy tree. So there will still be periods where you'll go back and revisit that and feel the sadness and, and express it, which is normal. Mm. You should. It's part of your humanity. It's part of your story. We need to honor those stories. But your, the way it's restructured, all this mind-brain work, all your psychoneurobiology down to every cell of your, not mm. just your brain that's changing, but your mind field, your biofield of your mind, which is all physics and stuff, your microtubules in your cells, which are these incredible structures that store information um, and so on. All of that's changing, but it doesn't change in short time periods, one day, four days, right. seven days. Does so, that make sense? Yeah, it, it, it does. Um, so it, is there, in essence, an ember that will always exist in there uh, depending on how much oxygen it's it's given by, I don't know, the tools that we use to keep a support network? Uh, uh, yeah. Caroline is, is nodding her, her head. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So there's always, you can, I always, this is a statement I make often. You cannot change what's happened to you, but you can change what's in you, what it looks like inside of you and how it plays out into your future. Now, in that process are those little embers that can reignite from a trigger and you can find yourself moving back into that coping mechanism you had developed, or you can feel a heavy depression coming on, or you can feel a panic attack. But by the fact that you've spent time stabilizing, rebuilding the network, it's more a, okay, I can see this is happening. And this is when I need to text my accountability partner. This is when I need to sit down and if it's the middle of the night, do a little neurocycle to get myself back on track with a nice little active reach. Maybe pull my car some, over and cry. Pull your car over and cry. I'm sorry, I cut no, you off. No, no, you did exactly. Pull your car over and cry. Go sit and watch the sunset. Uh, play with your dog. You know, whatever you need, get, get into that support group. You know, whatever you need to help you get reconnected. And to always... In, I know I keep saying it, but honor what you've gone through. Honor those emotions. Don't try and suppress them because a suppressed emotion is like a volcano. It will explode. It will. It It will will. explode. And then all over your life. 
bit of volcano that explodes and if you let it explode out, the lava eventually cools down and it remineralizes the soil and then whatever grows back is even greener than before. And they use the mineralized soil for face products. Point being is that <laughs> just to show you that good comes out of the bad. So I, I agree. Once, I, I, I believe that meaning is one of meaning. the most beautiful and there meaning and purpose. Meaning and purpose. That's where you share your, you are doing this podcast is that lava that's healed, the green grass is growing, people sharing stories on your podcast. That is exactly what you are enabling people to be encouraged to see, hey, the dormant volcano is still there, but it's no longer firing. You can still see the volcano. Mm-hmm. That doesn't go away. That's your story. But it no longer controls you. And that process is hard, painful, and is long. But there's yeah. a sequence to it. And what I'm trying to bring to mental health is let's not just do this chaotically. Let's bring in all the tools we're currently using. But let's use them in the order that we know is going to rewire the mind-brain-body connection in the direction where you can get help. And, Paul, you can do this with a child as young as two. This book that I'm just releasing in, in August this year called Helping Your Child it's to, to Help Parents Help Their Children Clean Up Their Mental Mess. My youngest patients were two and three years of age. I was helping them deal with trauma at that age and helping them learn how to manage their mind because essentially what I'm talking about is mind management. Mm-hmm. Um, you can teach a child as young as two and three how to start learning how to manage their mind. And if you look at the current situation where we are told daily how the mental health crisis in children's exploding and suicide and everything. There's a lot of factors, obviously, but all those factors are what our generation are facing. But what do we need to do? We need to manage our mind in the social media, the AI, the um, bullying, the changes of life. It's they're, they're just all the school shootings. School People, shootings. Kids having to do drills to drills. prepare for an active shooter. Is- exactly. But those are all external things we have to do to survive in society but we have to also work to the root we have to also see why that tutor shoots in the first place and if you track back it's you know we always label mental health problems as though mental health people people with mental health are crazy every human battles with mental health every human has a level of mental challenges if you're human you're alive you've got mental health challenges we're all crazy we're all a mess that's the bottom line and some of us obviously have more trauma than others because because of unfortunate circumstances but the fact is that our humanity means that we're messy Mm -hmm. and if we don't address that mess those volcanoes explode in shootings in whatever and if you track mm-hmm. the history of these kids because i've had quite a few um interviews with people that work in this field i've worked I, it's, it's my world it's my world that i that i move in and um there's always a, le- a history of unmanaged mind where a a, a a child has been immersed in i'm not saying what they're doing is right absolutely not but that's a volcano that's exploded but there's periods of abuse and um trauma in their lives that have, has not been addressed and the anger is coming out in the wrong way and then you know mm-hmm. you give access to guns and all that kind of thing you know you it's in social media and fame and all these distortions which come through a person who a child who's grown up in a toxic environment they're not looking at the world in the right way and would you also include a um deprived emotionally uh deprived environment uh does that factor in even if there's out neglect emotional neglect absolutely i mean i've i can tell you stories of 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 clients and people that have shared their stories with me over the years not just in therapy but commonalities of like parents who love their kids and they care for every need but they don't talk about their emotions because they didn't talk about their emotions and they didn't grow up with you know so the baggage came through and they that so the 
the, the rewards come with, oh, you did well at school or you did well at, but there's so it's all the external, but validating them as a person or being allowed to cry because someone bullied them and not being told, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Get You're over strong. that. You're strong. Pull up your big pants or whatever these silly phrases are that we use. So at the same time, we need to be able to validate our children's emotions and help them process it. That is vital. So yes, mm-hmm. to your question, absolutely. What were some of the, uh, the issues that you struggled with as a kid and as, as you do your work, maybe you have reflected back on and um, what what did that look like? Well, I think a lot of everything that all of us do is always informed by what we've gone through. It's just how we work. You know, you mm-hmm. obviously you doing what you're doing because of what you've gone through. So there's been there's obviously all of us, as I said, have got a lot of messiness. I think with me, I had a lot of um, body image issues. I had a um, friends that were um, very tall, very thin, blonde friends that were never had to ever worry but they, about their weight. But and I didn't even know I had an issue, and I wasn't. I was just a short person and very athletic. But they would tease me, and I was very young when I was friends with them. And that in, wired, I, I, I wired in this. Oh, I'm look funny because I don't look like that. I can't be a tall person. I'm five foot two. I can't be five foot eight. But that's not what you think of logically when you're a, when you're a five year old and a six year old, no. and you're being teased because of what you look like physically, and kind of this underlying mockery from even the parents. And it was one family, interestingly enough, that we spent. I was with my best friend, so I was with that family constantly, and that really impacted how I saw myself and what I saw as being an ideal. Body image, and obviously living in this world today, that can be easily accelerated. Um, and it took me years to actually accept the fact that you know that's not something that I um, that that is healthy for me to think like that. And it affect. I got anorexia as a as a young teenager when I went to university, and you know really got quite bad and that kind of thing. And I had to deal with all that side of things. So the way I dealt with that was, you know, as soon as I knew, I was so driven to go in and understand more about the mind and the brain. And I was getting got into doing neurosurgery, and I thought, no, this is not going to solve my you know anyone's mm-hmm. problems. Fixing the brain, I love the brain, but I want to know how the stuff gets in the brain, how how we function as humans. And that's what drove my move into going into more clinical neuropsych- neuroscience and psychoneurobiology and that kind of thing. Was the dis- and, and, and applying those principles in my own life helped me to rewire. And even now I know my triggers. I know what can trigger me and what, I know, but I know how to manage. If I think that I, if, if I see someone that looks like that friend, which is incredible, it's like all these years later, if I see someone in that with that particular body shape, it can trigger me, and I can think, "Oh, I'm not good enough." And Wait, so, do you, do you feel a physical reaction? I feel all of it. I feel describe as much of it. As, okay, so as you I will can. feel a jolt in my stomach. I will feel a little bit of self hatred towards my body. I will feel um, a sort of anxiety and this pressure that I've got to change this. I've got to change like this. Heart, I've got to palpitations, fix this. heart palpitations, sweaty palms. Yeah. So yeah. all the body. So four categories. I will feel um, shame towards myself. I will feel frustration, knowing that you know that's not an achievable thing. I'm not five foot eight. I can't be five foot eight. Um, that I would in my body, the heart palpitations, the tension in my body, um, behaviors. I'll start being a bit with used to be. I've got it under control now, but I would get withdrawn, quiet, and start watching what I was eating, but like intensively, and you know, managing to hide that to a certain extent. But you know, you people get your family get to know you, and they can see that. And um, I would see this perspective of I'm not accepted unless I look like that. 
So that's kind of a simple summary. But over the years, I've managed to, I, I can see that, I can recognize that immediately. So that little tree shrunk, and I know what to do. I know how to manage it. I honor that story in myself, and then I'll go through a neurocycle. I'll have to do, sometimes I might have to do a full 63-day um, reworking to see, okay, it's got quite bad. There's not just one factor. What what are the other triggers? What What is, you know, and sometimes what can trigger that is also if I'm, I, I, look, I'm, I, run, I run clinical trials. I do, like all of us, we're busy. I do, I, I can easily work 15 hours a day because I love what I do. When I get very tired, I'm very vulnerable, like all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, your physical mind and brain will get tired. My non-conscious is constantly going. So my, I know what makes me vulnerable and will make me look at things in a certain way. So I've learned mind management, and that's why I'm so hot on doing what I do because it works. I mean, what did the I do all the scientific research to show it as well. Uh, and, and I'm so glad that you were talking about tools because for me, uh, so much of any kind of emotional success in life is just constantly upgrading tools, refining them, sharpening that scalpel Absolutely. You know, rather than just going backsliding and using a sledgehammer to, uh, you know, <laughs> try exactly. to pull out a splinter. Exactly. Uh, what did process, the early processing of all the stuff you'd stuffed down, what did that look like? It looked like years of me looking in the mirror and thinking I was ugly and took me years to actually, only early into sort of into a few years into my marriage when I saw that this is not how my husband sees me, that I started looking at myself differently. So the early, the early sledgehammer was, I've got to get, I've got to change my body shape. I've got to change this. I've got to change that. So that was the, in the early years. And then the later years, as I started learning, doing all this research, I started applying it on myself. I could see I needed that. I mean, there's obviously other things, you know, my Dad was a very disconnected dad, and that was because he and I adored him, and he adored me. We had a great relationship, but he didn't know how to connect on an emotional mm-hmm. level. He couldn't, it was always very distant. And I craved so much more. And my mom grew up in, in the age where you didn't talk about your feelings either. So, you know, my mom's 87, my dad died 20 years ago, but, you know, that's the era, I'm 60, that's the era that, that, that I grew up in that you didn't talk about. You just, dealt with things and that disconnection never allowed me to really process things you know so it looked like that not processing things and that's why I decided to do when I had my own four children we're going to process we're going to talk about stuff you know so the, the, which very often happens you do what you, you hope to do what your parents didn't do and you bring through the good stuff so what what were some of the emotions that came, what did the volcano look like what were the emotions that came you know I think the biggest one was was actually Shame. I felt like I wasn't ashamed and not good enough, which is at your core of your identity. My identity started being hooked around what I looked like, which is, I mean, I was very, did very well at school academically. I do everything. So I had, there was enough validation, but it wasn't enough for me because in my mind, there was this totally skewed thing that oh, it doesn't matter how smart you are, how many degrees you have, how many certificates, how many advances you're making in whatever you're doing. It's still what counted more was that. That, uh, that what I look like on the outside. And so I, mean, I look back at this now and I think, gosh, it's amazing how I actually did that because it's so mm. not me now. 
Was there sadness? I'm sorry, I yes, cut, I no, cut no, you no, off. No, no, was there sadness, grief, anger? S- definitely sadness. What? Not anger as much as there was shame. Shame was massive. Shame and confusion and an awa- also an awareness that this is not right. This is There's got to be more than this external. And, you know, that, that conflict, there was a lot of conflict there. So once I started knowing how to manage it, that's when I saw those and the shame lifted and the way I looked at myself lifted. And, you know, that, that, went, that went away. Yeah. Huge. And my identity shifted because I was losing my identity in the wrong thing. And when we know you lose your identity, that's core to who you are. Your value, my value was in the wrong place. So I had to revalue myself. Befriend yourself. Befriend yourself. Change the relationship with yourself. You know, it's amazing. We, We go through our life and we have the unique opportunity to be our own best friend. And we talk to ourselves like our, our worst enemy. I know. And we mistake it for discipline. Yeah. And not, not at all. Not realizing no. that, you know, we can't change the, the genes we were given, the, the, our story. We can't change any of that. No. But it's so tempting to go to that place exactly. and to try to reverse engineer things in the hope that that's going to bring relief. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's so, um, that's where, why I think a lot of what drove me to do what I do and all the research besides working with people with traumatic brain injuries and autism to try and that kind of thing to try and in dementias to try and help people, you know, get their brain in a healthier mind brain connection in a healthier state. But it was understanding that those self talk things and those perspectives that I knew were wrong, but I was still so controlled that I could say it, that's not the right way to be, to, to be, but I was so controlled by that. I wanted to understand why was there such a hold and why was it manifesting in those behaviors? And that's where the study of the unconscious really helped me because I saw then how I've got this huge big tree that's toxic, that's driving, and it's creating conflict because my unconscious is saying, hey, that's not healthy for you. And I'm getting all these signals that uh, that are that I'm not paying attention to, and I've got this little green tree over here that is what is the truth of who I am, and I had to kind of reconnect and rebuild this so that I could see the truth, and that that took time. And what did the mean part of your brain? What was it saying as you began to grow this healthy little green tree? My mind and brain, because your brain can do nothing without your mind. So that mind-brain right. connection, what 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 I was seeing was totally on my side it was and this may sound so weird because there was this one part of me my messy consciousness was saying all these things about me and there was this this weird look weird sort of drive to see this but when i stood back and observed myself and understood the unconscious i could actually objectively evaluate and say oh look at those branches look at what i'm saying look where it comes from that's definitely not the truth i need to reconstruct so the mean mind was actually fairly silent the mean mind was conscious. It wasn't the non-conscious. And that's, that's a huge breakthrough. If, 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 if I can help you understand this, this is huge because we have this incorrect teaching in science. And it's not even good science at all that we have this negative, this natural inborn evil mind bad mind, whatever part of us, what happens is that we have a mind-brain connection that is totally on our side, but we build things contrary to our natural nature. Mm-hmm. When we're drawn to like negativity or drawn to all these bad things that are happening, it's not because we're drawn there because we have an evil mind. It's because it's imbalance. It mm-hmm. goes against our natural wired for love nature. And so therefore we try and we get drawn in to try and 
gee, I can't understand this. It's imbalanced. How can we restore that? But you can get sucked in and you can wire, you can wire all these neural pathways into your brain, networks into your brain that are contrary to who you are. But when you stand back and you see, oh, that's actually toxic, that's toxic. So imagine a huge forest with millions of trees or trillions, which are all our experiences. And through the middle of the forest is this beautiful exquisite perfect part that's your wisdom that's the core this is a great analogy and imagine flying over in a little helicopter and you you the pilot is your messy mind just going through life and then your wise mind is this is the co-pilot that's guiding the you know Mm -hmm. very much guiding the pilot just a simple analogy but in the outside of the beautiful part which is always like the thing that's drawing you back that you that's at the core of you that we that drives us to actually keep going and that we sort of believe at the basis of you know the goodness of humanity and love and all these things that universally we we talk about in the parts around that there's clumps of darkness where these toxic trees are and we can see that hey that area's an area that needs attention and if you listen to the co-pilot you'll land the plane in the one that's the most um sort of dominant in that moment, sending mm-hmm. out the most smoke signals for want of analogies. And you'll land the plane there. So in other words, what I'm saying is that our non-conscious is our best friend. It's on our side. It's not this bad thing filled with bad things that we've got to now fight these instincts. What we need to do is kindly and compassionately dive into our wisdom, which is that internal part, and you know, look where these things are and slowly over time work on the ones that are the most disruptive patterns and slowly but surely work on that aspect yeah. and that's very hopeful and it's very scientific i i, I agree uh, uh, i often wish that there was a more obvious connection between the the spiritual world uh and uh, the scientific world you know when i started going to support groups one of the things that i saw the hurdle that a lot of people experienced and i experienced a small degree of it but eventually kind of surrendered to the belief that there is something in the universe whether it's atoms molecules a deity i have no idea but i know when i'm tapped into my support group and I'm living an honest life, doing all the things that reflect who I am authentically inside, I feel different. I feel more peaceful. I have more clarity in my life. And I believe it's one with science. I don't believe it's outside Mm -mm. of science. And two things come to mind as we're talking about all of these things. And, and this is something that I that I truly believe is everybody has a God. It may not be the God that we think about the religious God. Mm-hmm. It might be money. It mm-hmm. might be sex. It might be validation, finding the perfect job, but something that we are chasing after mm-hmm. in the belief that we are going to experience the feelings we want to feel mm-hmm. from this thing. And it could be self-obsession, could be our, our God. Um but if we don't begin to understand what our intentions are in our daily actions, um, if we don't understand what it is that we're seeking, um, we're walking in the dense part of that forest mm-hmm. with no idea what it looks no, like yeah. from from above. You're kind of stuck. You're actually just stuck in one walking like round and round in just one clump of dark trees and thinking that's your perspective right. and that's all that there is. Yeah, no, that's totally true. I, sorry, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say uh, the the manner in which we seek, I think, has everything to do with the quality of life and the um, 
the path that we are on towards being our higher self, our authentic self, whatever, whatever you want to call it. So it, in a lot of ways, I feel like it's just harnessing the energy that we're putting into bad tools and into good into good tools because that energy is there oh yeah it's totally. just being misdirected and it feels like exactly stuck but it's not stuck if we can just get out of that clump of trees and step over a little bit we'll step into this incredible wisdom you know and that's where we need the tools you know and that's why i've tried to be on a very practical level working with people of all ages let's we, talk about the kids I mean, the, the, which is the subject yeah. of, of your your book? Some of the uh, warning signs. And no, let me yeah, cut no, you no. off. Was there another thought you wanted? I to I just wanted start to with? touch in on on the spiritual side. These actually, I I personally believe, and from my work, and I know I'm not the only scientist who believes this. Science is very spiritual. I have my most spiritual moments when I because I do have a whole research team, and we do incredible research with the psychoneurobiology, and it's fascinating. You see this response in the brain, and you see these changes in the body, and you know inflammation going down, and telomeres growing as a person's narratives getting under control and you know when you see this it's unbelievable and then you know there's people that are doing incredible Nobel Prize winning research that 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 have got um, like Sir Roger Penrose and Stuart Hammerhoff who've actually taken Einstein's work even deeper but in a nutshell without getting too complex that whole spiritual Mm -hmm. and the connection with the non-conscious and this wisdom these this this goodness or love or whatever you want to call it it exists these they can actually start putting theories to this and the whole space-time theory is uh, let me think of the easiest way to explain we've all heard of einstein space-time relativity Mm -hmm. it's all most people don't really fully understand a very simple way of understanding is that there's these little warps in space and there's like almost like these little gaps in space and it's alive and the sir roger penrose He's been, um, he's, he's one of the top mathematicians of the century. He talks about those as being these little bursts of intelligence. He even gives them the value of love and whatever. And they exist in the universe. So as we are experiencing stuff, what you go through, what I go through, the things that we create as humans that are experiences for each other, you know, whether it's reading a book that someone's written or whether it's having this conversation or whether it's having a bad experience or whether it's reading the poly- whatever it is, those are all experiences. And those all exist as potential, intelligent potential in the universe. And then they, as we, you uniquely are seeing this conversation in your way, I'm seeing it in my way. But we're taking all this data and these moments and we filtering it through each of our minds into our brain and we're having a change structure, a collapse of this consciousness and we have this ability to then express that. So all of that being said, I mean, I'm trying to simplify very complex science. There is science to explain this scientific spiritual link and yeah. this, this commonality amongst humanity of, of being driven by love. I talk about loveness for want of another word. So just in, if that is the case and from the years I've been in this field and looking at it from a physicist's point of view, from a scientist's point of view, from a therapist, from a mother, from psychological, and I've had very good training in my, I'm very, on, very lucky to have a very interesting training in my degrees and things. I can honestly say that we can train ourselves to develop these tools to help us recognize what we are building into our brain, what we're collapsing, how we're doing it. And we can change it. It's not, we're not hopeless. Right. I think so often people get stuck into, and I know myself as well, we get stuck when we think, I can't change this. This is who I am. And our current psychiatric model is one of, hey, you know, you've got a chemical imbalance. That's just who you are. It's not who you are. It's the result of. Mm-hmm. Whereas you can change that. You can rewire. It's hard work. It's not easy. 
And that's why I want to start this as young as possible. So the reason I wrote this book is because I was doing it in my practice, brought my kids up like this. I've been helping people for years with people that are not just old, not just adults. So I decided it's time that we empower our children because it's not that we have got very unique mental health challenges currently. We have got an increase in suicide. We do know that there's all these things going on around us. So it's not that this is not happening, but every generation's faced something and every generation has its own kind of mental health battles. What's unique, I believe, to this generation, each generation has its, I'm not saying this is the only generation with uniqueness, is that we have access to a kind of an immersion of information. Whereas before you may be bullied at school, you go home, you get away from the bully for a few hours and you come back the next day. There's kind of breaks in between. Now with social media, artificial intelligence, you're immersed, you bathed. And to know how to manage that bathing, which we have just so much stimulation that is good and bad. If we don't manage that, we won't get the benefit out of it. And so that's if, if we um, and, and then it manages us and a child from young all of us, children and adults, our brain will merge with the environment that we put it into. So if you're putting it into an environment of pure FOMO, fear of what other people how. think, or in yeah. social media comparison, you know, whatever, you, and you don't teach a child how to manage that, they, and you tell them that they're fragile, they're broken. So you're giving a child a message, hey, you're broken, it's your fault. Um, and even though we may not be saying those words, we're telling them, uh, you know, it's not your circumstances. It's not, we're not helping them manage what they're seeing on social media. We're not helping them manage all these things that are changing and adolescence. And we are just saying, oh, you have these symptoms. You have this brain disease. We label you. You're broken. That takes hope away from a child. And it also tells them that they're fragile. Meanwhile, we're not fragile. We're strong. We're resilient. But we're masking our resilience. So I want children to understand from young as possible that I can be empowered to be able to say what I feel and get someone to help me process through this and to help a parent to recognize those signs in a child and to be able to give a child and a parent a way of connecting with a child and an adult, caretaker, teacher, whatever, how to recognize when a child is asking for help and for a child to be able to have the tools. Even if they're not saying, I, I need help. Exactly. Even to be able to recognize the symptoms. So let's say a child's been bullied at school. Let's say that you have a two-year-old who goes to day, daycare and there's one little boy who's maybe a bit older, two and a half or something, and they're constantly you know, breaking the child's little tower that they're building or something. Now, that may not sound like a big deal, but in that little child's mind, that's becoming a scary environment because that they are, in essence, being bullied. Now, they don't know how to talk about that, but they do know how to show that something's wrong. And the only way they know is maybe to throw a tantrum and to, you know, wet the bed and to, you know, maybe pinch something from their siblings or carry out that behavior with a sibling or an, uh, uh, mm-hmm. whatever. And then they see, and if it's not dealt with and con- chronic it in the daycare environment, it will become a chronic bunch of signals in their daily life and the way we are conditioned currently or parents are conditioned currently is if you have these certain behaviors then there's something wrong with your child now that will come out the child may start being difficult inherently wrong with them versus in an environmental trigger yes so that this yes because what what happens is that that behavioral stuff maybe starts carrying over back into the school so it's initially just at home then it carries back into the school so now the parents notice something now the teacher notices something and they think oh hang on let's have a meeting oh your child's got something wrong with them we need to refer you to a psychiatrist we go to the psychiatrist in 15 minutes you describe your child's symptoms you get a a diagnosis of pediatric bipolar or something because one minute your child's happy, the next minute your child's sad. That is not accurate because diagnosis implies you have a biological source like with 
uh, diabetes, there's a biological source, there's a problem with your pancreas. That's not the case. We do not have that. That's not what men- mental illness is. It's not that at the source there's an impact. And we don't even know the impact. We so, don't even fully understand it. So are you saying uh, in adults, bipolar doesn't exist? I don't say it doesn't exist. I say it's not a disease. It's an, it's a description. So it's a description of, if you look at four categories, like behaviors, emotions, bodily sensations, and perspective. You take those four categories, which is basically a big way of looking at how we show up, and you can each one of those can be filled out. Now, when we have a lot of extreme challenges, we are going to show up in different ways, and one of those could be extreme mood swings, which then obviously if you're having a mood swing, your behavior changes. So does your bodily sensation, so does your perspective, and the way you then show up in your relationship, your work, mm-hmm. your day-to-day living. So that's not a brain disease. That doesn't need to be labeled. It's not that there's a, it's not a thing like diabetes that has a change in the brain that is oh that's bipolar brain we can't say that there's no ways that we so can... these are pimples on the skin and there's something underneath them. exactly so we rather use that word as a descriptive like an adjective that right. this is a bipolar type behavior because there's and then describe it in its full extent and then think okay well that's the behaviors let's talk about the emotions let's take all, let's get all the detail of the description then let's look then at reflect on why what's the context what's going on do you see what i'm saying it's different mm-hmm. to just saying okay that's the bipolar we need that med controls yes of sure those those the antidepressants are going to control the mood swings because they've numbed the brain. Right. So the brain is not, you're not functioning so the same. So are you against that? Yes. Or, or, or merely as a sole way of dealing it as with it? As a sole it. way of dealing with it, it's, it's a huge issue. Right. In the long run, people don't heal. The research is very, very clear. And unfortunately, research is always 20 years ahead of what the public are aware of. So what we know as scientists and what is coming out fortunately more and more is that that bipolar medication is a drug. It's not a medication. It's not fixing the problem. It's basically numbing the person so that they're calmer. But that's not a chronic solution, a long-term solution. I'm so terrified right now of of this being said on my podcast um, because I'm so afraid that people are going to go, well, then I should get off my medication. So so here comes the caveat, okay? Okay. So here comes, I never talk with this without explaining the other side, okay? So let let me finish this and then I'm going to bring the caveat in. So no one goes off their meds immediately. Do not ever do that. Worst thing you can do. So no no medical person, no mental health specialist, no therapist would tell you to go off immediately without understanding the implication. So that bipolar medication is not a medication. It's a drug that's helping you cope in the moment. If it's used like if you have a Um, a headache, you take ibuprofen. You don't take it all day long or for the rest of your life. You take it as needed. Mm -hmm. So it's better to use that kind of drug to calm you down in the moment if you're having an episode. But to use it long-term changes the brain, and it has what we call an iatrogenic effect, which means it actually does more harm than good. So the research shows in the long-term it's not fixing anything. It's actually helping you temporarily, but it's not going to to resolve the issue. So you want to calm down in the moment, but you want to then also work through your issues. So you need to then do the whole mind management situation. Otherwise, you're just going around and around and around the mountain and it will get worse and worse because you'll get more and more and more side effects. So if someone listening to this now, which is a lot of people, 95% of people think that bipolar is an actual 
disease because that's mm-hmm. what that's what the last mm-hmm. 40 to 56 years has sold us most people don't realize that that's not actually correct science it's been disproved it never was actually accurate perceptions it's more of a placebo effect but most people don't know that they don't realize that the good news is that you don't have to just go off it you can make a decision get more knowledge get more information and if you do decide to withdraw there's a whole withdrawal protocol that can help you withdraw very 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 slowly with guidelines and so on. Now, I, I have interviewed some of the top scientists who've done research in the field, psychiatrists, etc., who are specialists in withdrawal, and they have books and everything. And so on my podcast, people, if they're interested, they can go to my podcast and search drug withdrawal and that kind of thing so they can get excellent resources to make an informed decision. But never stop straight away because your brain has changed. And Stopping can lead to even more you know, suicidal ideation. That's what I experienced when ex- I have tried to go off my meds and my psychiatrist always urged me not to. Um, That's the standard training that they receive. So I work with a lot of psychiatrists on both sides of the camp. And that is the standard training in the textbooks. But in the psychiatric textbook in 1996, I think it was, they actually have a whole explanation of this is not the answer. Meds are not the answer. They are just part of the toolbox used acutely versus chronically. That means used as needed versus as a constant, like you have to stay on blood pressure meds for the rest of your life. It shouldn't be used like that. So there is the science and the evidence. So yes, when you if you just stopped, you would have symptoms that would make that your, your psychiatrist, psychiatrist would tell you that your disease is getting worse or your disease is coming back. Now that's not accurate. You don't have a disease. You have life situations that have changed your brain, changed your body, have thrown you off course, and those emotions are overwhelming. So when you have those moments of overwhelm, the medication used in that moment to just calm you down so that you can then get to the point where you can get your support group, get if you do mm. the neurocycle, whatever mind management, you can then start working through that process. So it's the withdrawal that you experience when suddenly stopping isn't a disease coming back. It is because your brain actually changes structurally to adapt to that psychoactive medication. Is, is it possible that my brain, <clears throat> I've been taking meds for 20 years and um, i I asked my psychiatrist one time, what is it that I have? And he said, you have treatment-resistant depression due to childhood adversity. So that's the standard kind of phrase that you'll get. So you have childhood adversity. Mm -hmm. It's done that whole thing of building into your brain like I've Mm -hmm. spoken about, and it's impacted your neurophysiology. It's changed your brain, changed your body. So there's been an impact. And treatment resistant is a word that's used when She's people... She's using air quotes right Yeah, now. exactly. Yeah. I'm using air quotes because they are phrases that are not scientific, but they are used for the public because how else do they explain these things to you? There is no such thing as treatment resistant depression. What we I have... I find that so hard to believe. I know because that's what you've been told for 20 years. So what we have when we, people say treatment resistant, what we're saying is trauma that hasn't been fully resolved. That's what we're really dealing with. And we haven't fully dealt with the whole process from deconstructing and reconstructing to get that tree. So you're still sitting with probably a tree of the trauma. I don't know what happened in your life. And the tree that's helping you cope. And you've got this toolbox of medication to help when you fall into the pit of focusing on Mm. the toxic one. But you haven't got to the point where you've changed the power that that has over you, um, that, that, that issue. And that takes a lot of the right kind of therapy plus the right kind of self-mind management. What I've shown with my research and many other researchers is, and as I also was a practicing therapist for 25 years, is that you can't, um, you're not going to change it overnight, as we all know. You've got to be very organized and ordered in how you deal with 
going to the root of dealing with these traumas. You've got it, it, it's, it's a process. I mean, I've done so many different modalities. Yeah. I've done, um, you know, EMDR, somatic experiencing, um, and, and they've all been helpful. I, I felt some relief from all of them. But have you done mind management? Have you had a consistent process where you have worked as you, that you, on your own, have managed to to be able to stand back and evaluate and work through. Okay, I'm feeling like this. These those yeah, four categories yes, work through. I do. De- have you deconstructed yes. and reconstructed over time? Uh, yes. Uh, over 63-day cycles. Uh, that I don't know if I've done that specifically. Because what but, can happen mm-hmm. is that um, is that you you do all of that stuff. You can get to that because I can tell you now. I work with this a lot. Where people get to the point where you've done you you can you can tell me exactly what went wrong. Mm-hmm. You can tell me what happened. You can tell me the impact. You could you could give me all of those. But have you done? Have you did you know? Most people don't realize it. Once you have done the reconstruction, once you've done the process of becoming aware and getting down to that point of the recheck process where you're saying, okay, this has happened. What can I do? Are you going, have you taken the time to go through the process? And I don't mean this in a negative way. I mean this, have you, did you know, that's a better way of saying it. Did you know that you have to take what you know and actually take that through a process of rewiring, which takes time. It's a little bit of stuff every single day in very um, definite sequences of time in order to override that network that keeps pulling you back into the old patterns that have Totally. I, I, I believe uh, I have. I mean, um, I've consistently been in uh, support groups for, for decades. And I, and I have to say, I feel like I've made tremendous it sounds uh, like progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, compulsions uh, are es- essentially gone. But I do sometimes find myself um, ruminating, um, you know, the doom prognosticator in my brain will t- will take hold but i also have this recovered part of me that says bring it back to this moment that's just your old story in your head trying to protect protect you by predicting something so you're not taken by surprise but it is very inaccurate and it is not something you Excellent. want to rely so on that's that little that little toxic little portion that's yes. on the tree that you've recon. So you've done that work and you've yes. done it maybe not in the sequence that I've described so specifically, but Let's, you've done the work over I, time. I feel a tremendous amount of peace through, Fan- throughout my day. That's I don't fantastic. feel agitated, but that's there- fantastic. So now the mm-hmm. thing with, with what I'm hearing you say, so you've done the work. Okay. So you've answered my question and you've rewired these networks. I'm, yeah. Go ahead. Go so ahead. what I'm thinking, you can, you know, we're just having a discussion now. So you can right. tell me I'm right or wrong. At this point, the medication isn't something that's done it for you. You've done it. Yes, I, and I You've believe that. Yeah. I'm just terrified to go off my well, medication because I'm afraid you. I'm going to kill myself. No, that's where withdrawal. And, you know, this is something that you have to make. A, you need to be with. If you do decide, you need to know exactly how to withdraw. And withdrawal is one of those really weird things that you, you, it's like a hyperbolic curve. You've got to do such tiny fragments of, of reduction. And it can take, you know, it can take time to withdraw. But that sense of... Um, what the you can never do it and you can carry on with your life and you'll be fine mm-hmm. it's not going to destroy you um but it does have an impact on your brain it does change your brain but if you decide that this is what you or your path you choose that path because your mind is stronger than what this is doing to your brain so you can also control the kind of the sounds so weird but to a certain extent you can control with your mind the level of damage that those 
drugs unfortunately are doing in your brain but you can you can control that because mm-hmm. your mind is stronger and you're doing all the right things to do it so that's excellent if you decide you wanted to do did want to go off you really do need to do the right protocol that is absolutely vital and sometimes you'll have to stop in between um like for example the royal college of psychiatrists say Mark Doctor, um, oh gosh, what's the guy's name? I've gone, it's gone blank for a moment. But he has written up the protocol. He's a psychiatrist and he has a similar story to what you actually tell and how he was on all these meds and everything. And he actually, as a psychiatrist who's also medically trained, obviously they're medical mm-hmm. doctors, he has now spent his life's work in helping people who are in your position how to actually withdraw safely. And because of what he saw, and what he understands from psychopharmacology, what those drugs do in the long run. Now, you don't have to do any of this, but if you were interested, this is what I'd say to you and any listener. If that is something, if you want to see how to do it and see the change it makes in your life, then do it properly. Find out from the the specialists, the best people who have done the research and you know how to do it safely. Try that. What are some resources feel, for that? Um, Dr. Peter Gotcha is a great resource. G O T S Z C H E. Okay. Um, I can send this all to you and you can put this well, in the show yes, notes. Yes, we'll give it to you in the show notes. And then this podcast that I have done with these, I've interviewed all these top people, gotcha, all of them. And I can send you all those links. People can listen to them. And then in my show notes, all the links are there as well. Mm-hmm. So they, those are what I consider some of the top resources in the world by okay. scientists that are psychiatrists and medical doctors who've been through a lot of the stuff themselves and who have out of compassion and concern scientifically and for their patients, have set up these systems to try and help people. So it's done with every good intention. Yes. So it's not. And and please don't be offended by this. I just want to to say that this is not an endorsement on my behalf of of these these things. I am uh, an amateur. Uh, I am just a fan of mental health discussions. And, and I like to say that because I have a huge range of differing opinions on Absolutely. this podcast and I don't want people to think, well, if I have a guest on, I am giving thumbs up to every single thing they say. There is a large part of me that trusts you and, and believes that what you are saying um, is is true. And I certainly don't think you're lying. Um, I, I just have a deep fear that somebody is going to, uh, that there is, is, isn't a one size fits all. No, there isn't. And, and that's why I was saying, and I totally agree. And I do, I, I have to podcast myself and I have the same thing. I don't endorse everyone's opinions. What we're doing is having a discussion. That's And great. we're providing an alternative point of view so that people can think about this, but neither you nor I, and I as a medical professor, as a a mental health professional I am not telling someone go off your drugs it's the last thing I'm telling you to do what I'm saying is if you're interested to find out more and find out that what how they really do work in your body and what an alternative could be there are specialists that have trained and researched this in depth on how to withdraw and, and, and that's do, an option and do but it never under, never stop immediately yeah. never and and do it under the continued care medical. of a psych- psychiatrist. A medical professional a medical. that knows what they're talking about. You're generally a psychiatrist like Dr. Jana Moncrief and um, Dr. Mark Horowitz, that's the guy who, who wrote up the protocol for the Royal College of Psychiatrists. He's world-renowned for his work. Um, they have excellent protocols that you can literally go online and you can find them. But And then you can also find people in your area. So it's, it would be a good idea for people to, if they do choose to do this, is to do a lot of research and investigation. Make sure that you have all the support networks in place, like you have the support groups, excellent mind management. Obviously, I'm bringing an option to the table of the, the neurocycle and, and my books and things. But don't just stop. You have to have a good 
therapeutic empowerment self-management system in place. Yeah, if you are isolated, you're not going to support groups, you you, you haven't processed alone. the trauma, exactly. I mean, that would be a shit show. Very, very, it would be a shit show. So you've got to be, you know, that's what, listening to lots of podcasts, making sure that you have, all of these are very important to put in place. So get knowledge, get information, get understanding, get the support systems in place, get research it's your decision. It's your life. It's your bio-individual approach. It's your uniqueness. You've got to do what works for you. But take all the knowledge that you're hearing and work out what works best for you. That's what I'm saying. And I think it's what you're saying as well. It's not just one yes. thing. Right. It, we cannot have one, a cookie-cutter approach. And that's why I developed the system that I have because it's not a You can do whatever you want within that. I have many people that use the neurocycle that have decided to stay on meds because that's how they've, they've, they're functioning. And That's it still great. helps them. Absolutely. I've had people that have used the neurocycle to withdraw. I've had people that have been on the neurocycle, gone on meds, come off meds. It's so unique for every individual. But just be aware of the other side of the story. That's what I try and bring to the table. And this cycle, is this in your current book or your previous books? The, the neurocycle is in this, in the, uh, this book. The, this the previous is my, one, which is uh, called your, Cleaning, Cleaning Up, up your, your Mental, mental mess. mess. And then I have an app okay. as well called the Neurocycle where I literally give you therapy. I take you through the process. Now, the and children's book is how to help your child clean up their mental mess. So it's the Neurocycle adapted down to help children. So gotcha. it's to help parents, teachers, etc. help children. So this this particular book's for ages two through ten. Okay. To help them have the tools to be able to deal with childhood adversity and so on. Uh thank and you. And we so have a toy. And a toy. Brainy toy, the little brainy toy which is to help the child as a, if a child's an adverbal yes. and you they understand that this is what helps them feel better. Yeah. If a child can't talk they can grab a toy. It's very adorable. So we, it is adorable, isn't it? My dogs love it too. So we won't show your dog because I think your dog will eat it. Uh, I love it. I'm going to cuddle with it tonight <laughs> and uh, maybe it'll help me sleep while I ponder all of these uh, new, challenging things. New challenging <laughs> things for, for me to think about. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming on. And again, um, let's let's share where people can find you on social media, your website, etc. And you've written 19 books, so we're not going to list them no, all here. No, I go for these latest two, which are the yes. most up-to-date. And I've got a lot of scientific journal articles that people can read if they're interested in the whole research side. Drleaf.com is my webpage. Um, L-E-A-F. L-E-A-F, like on the tree. And my um, social media handle is Dr. Caroline Leaf. And my podcast is Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. Thank you so much. Thank you. Did you enjoy that? I hope you did. This episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. Uh, you got places to be. Standing in line at the checkout is not one of them. So why don't you leave the meal planning and grocery shopping to HelloFresh? With pre-portioned ingredients and easy step-by-step -step recipes delivered to your door, you'll save so much time and cut out the hassle. When life gets busy, don't call for delivery. Get HelloFresh. It's 25% cheaper than takeout and less expensive than grocery shopping. Just choose your recipes and receive fresh, pre-portioned ingredients so you can get cooking quick. Last night, I made their sheet pan Dijon onion crunch chicken, and it was a delicious. Simple, quick, easy to make. So go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Mental and use code 50Mental for 50% off plus free shipping. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Mental and use code 50METAL for 50% 50 off plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. This is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by Gia. 
who also goes by the name Mental Fairy on the uh, forum. And she writes, I love when my main cat, and main is spelled M-A-I-N-E, I guess that's a a uh, variety of cat. A variety? What do you call that? A brand of cat? Um, I love when my main coon cat, <laughs> Maisie Moo Moo Alley Row the second. You know, why is it that we give our pets, <laughs> we never call them the name, or I should say we rarely call them the name that we that we give them. Like, I call Gracie Gracie once in a while, normally when I want her to come in from the backyard. But most of the time, it's Angel, it's Princess, uh, Pumpkin Pie, Lady Bird. <laughs> so ridiculous. I love when she climbs on my chest in the wee hours of the morning and kneads, K-N-E-A-D-S, her paws into my chest to then lay down upon my heart and rest her face upon my chin, all while purring. Between the kneading and the purring, it makes me feel so loved, unjudged, and needed. I love it. I love the cold on my skin when I first go outside in the morning to watch the early morning stars shining their last twinkle before the sun or clouds take over. Love holding that hot mug of coffee and breathing in the fresh morning air. I love laying on my bed and having the pillow envelop my head and provide me with some hope that maybe tonight I won't have a nightmare-free sleep. I love getting into my car after I've given it a good clean and feeling like I've accomplished something. Oh, that's a great one. I love mowing my lawn. Freshly cut grass and clean lines around the edges give a satisfied feeling. I love cutting into a homemade pie on a cool winter night and smelling the fresh smell of pastry filled with a delightful pie filled with contents. I want to know what the contents are. I hope it's fruit. If it's not, I cast you to hell. I love smearing butter on freshly cooked toast. Oh, that's such a good one. Watching it melt into the baked bread, preparing the surface for its topping of choice. Oh, you go topping. Hmm, I don't know how I feel about that. And I love going home after work and remembering I'd already prepared dinner for that night earlier in the day and all I have to do is put the oven on. That one is fantastic. I think that's one of my favorite things about Indian food is it reheats so well. Sometimes I'll I'll order like a week's worth of Indian food and it's it's almost like being on vacation, not having to think. Think sometimes just thinking about what you're going to have for dinner and what you're going to make is m- more work than the actual doing it. This is a shame and secret survey, and this is filled out filled out by a woman who calls herself Snickers One Fifty Two. She identifies as straight. She's in her fifties. She says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. My mother's boyfriend, who was in a wheelchair, molested me at the age of eight. Uh, I'm sorry, this gets a bit graphic. He would put his finger in my vagina while I was sitting on his lap in the wheelchair, right in front of others. No one ever said anything, or maybe they didn't know. At around 12, my older cousin took me in the closet and fingered me. Uh, 
She has never been physically abused, but she's been emotionally abused. My parents were both alcoholics, so they were not the best at showing love. They would try to control my anger and horrible acts with guilt. My father always made sure I knew I wasn't good enough. Well, he was attentive. I'm going to say he was there for you. Uh, Any positive experiences with the abusers? Uh, Not with the abusers. But I do have a better understanding of why people do what they do after being abused. Darkest thoughts. I'm struggling with my oldest daughter's delusional thoughts of us abusing her and our granddaughter. I really wish she would just die. Boy, that is dark. I really want my husband to strangle her so her children have a chance at a healthy life. Wow, I I can't imagine what it is like to be caught between feeling your duty as a mother and wanting out from that chaos. Especially being saddled with all the shit from your own childhood. That's one of the things that I really appreciate about this survey is the people, and I think it's because they have the freedom to do it anonymously on these surveys. I mean, we don't even gather your IP address. Um, The freedom to let those things out that we've never said aloud to another person. Uh, Darkest Secrets. I played with my younger brother's penis when I was about 15 and he was one or two. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, I used to like public sex. Um, Fantasizing about having uh, two partners, both men, and watching my husband receive oral sex from another woman, uh, then slowly fucking her doggy style. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Did I truly love my daughter who struggles with mental illness? And I wish we had the relationship that I have with my other daughter. I can't speak to her right now. Did I blame my mother for all my fucked up thoughts and actions, even though I know she was doing her best? I would never tell her now because I don't want to hurt her. What, if anything, do you wish for? A good relationship with my oldest daughter and her children. That our youngest daughter no longer struggles with depression. Have you shared these things with others? No. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better. And hopeful that things will get better. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You are not alone. People out here love you just the way you are. Uh, Thank you for that. Wow. That was intense. This is a, a love from List Lover, and they write, I love when my somewhat bad habit of keeping anything basically trash that could be useful one day, such as boxes, pieces of ribbons, plastic bags, etc., turn out to be useful after a long time storing them. The small hoarder inside me feels validated when something I've kept for 10 years is finally used in a craft project. That is a great one. That is a great one. And then finally, these are, uh, I guess this is just uh, one love. This is filled out by Nate K. And Nate writes, 
I love when I'm able to see the world with new eyes when I wasn't even trying. It's those moments when something in the universe seems to line up just right and everything seems to look different and it feels calm or even energizing. It seems to typically happen after a really good restful nap. You wake up after being gone for a while in a deep place and the the world just looks different. Something feels different. A feeling like there's something there that's probably always been there, but you're just now noticing it. A pattern in the world has lined up just right for you to see it. Like when you're walking through an orchard of perfectly lined rows of trees and you can see something at the far, far edge of the orchard through a gap in the trees that reaches so, so far. And whatever it is you're seeing just seems to be magnified because it's framed perfectly by the world around it. Love it. Thank you for that. And thank you again to everybody who supports this show, whether it's financially through Patreon or one-time or monthly donations through PayPal or going to Apple Podcasts, giving us a review and a rating or filling out the survey or spreading the word through social media about the podcast. Any of those things uh, help greatly and I'm super appreciative for that. And um, just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.